The Interchange is brought to you by Jinko Solar, a leading solar panel manufacturer and energy storage integrator. Publicly listed on the New York Stock Exchange, Jinko Solar has deployed 100 gigawatts in 160 countries globally, including more than 15 gigawatts in the U.S. As a global leader with strong regional focus, Jinko Solar has a sales office located in San Francisco, California, and a manufacturing facility in Jacksonville, Florida, with over 300 employees available to provide customers with timely, local service. Jinko Solar now offers energy storage for a variety of residential, CNI, and utility projects. To learn more about Jinko's Eagle Storage Solutions, visit www.jinkosolar.us/interchange. I think it's an extraordinarily exciting time for the energy transition as it relates to the public markets. Obviously, there's been a lot of excitement initially with the ultimate end user of lithium, which is the automobile uh, companies. There's basically a race to electrify. We are currently going through a reformation of the power grid and a revitalization process in how we create energy. Not only are there more ways to create and harness energy than ever before, there are new ways to store that energy. To power these batteries, however, requires a sustainable and environmentally sound method of extracting lithium. Today's guest is Zachary Sadow, the CEO and co-founder of KMX Technologies. KMX is an emerging leader in rare earth mineral extraction and wastewater treatment. Why is this important? Today's modern batteries require high levels of finite minerals such as lithium. KMX is changing the process of how we extract these minerals and making sure the wastewater from these processes is returned to its pure form. Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Thanks so much for having me. So we, we've had a number of episodes on the importance of energy storage as it relates to the energy transition and, and obviously lithium being a key component for the batteries. And you know that process is, is a very long process, as you know. But lithium is expected to reach 55 billion of market by 2040. So, you guys have a technology to accelerate that long process for the lithium extraction. So, why don't you give us a little bit of an overview of KMX and the technology that you've developed? Thanks so much, David. KMX is a pretty extraordinary company in technology. The technology was developed over a 15-year period and has gone through numerous. Uh, iterations and generations. And today we find ourselves uniquely positioned to solve one of the critical challenges for lithium development. At the core of what we do is we concentrate. We concentrate salts, waste streams, and we are able to concentrate lithium in its natural state, lithium chloride. And that's a very powerful capability. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the technology that you've developed for the lithium concentration? Yeah, so there's three steps in bringing lithium to market. Lithium is produced in two ways today. Hard rock mining, uh, which is predominantly done in Australia, and then from, uh, from brines. And this is in South America. Uh, there's a lot of lithium in brines found in North America, in Europe. But for bringing lithium from brines to the market, there's three steps in doing so. One, you need to isolate the lithium from the other impurities. And that's done through two different ways. In South America right now, that's done using large uh, evaporation ponds. Or there is an emerging technology that, 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 that has been around for a while, but that's been 
garnering new traction, which is direct lithium extraction. That's step one, isolating the lithium and removing it from the other impurities. At that point, the lithium is still in very low concentrations, and it needs to be concentrated up to a point where it's able to be converted from its natural state, which is lithium chloride, to battery-grade lithium, which is lithium hydroxide or lithium carbonate. And that's what we do. We concentrate the lithium, bringing it to a place where it's optimal and ready for its conversion to battery-grade lithium. And how is this different than, I know that there's been a number of projects through the years that have been tried to be developed, but they've been shuttered. So how does this differ from some of the other projects that other companies have, have tried to develop? In regards to um, lithium concentration, our, our, our main competition is a dual process of a mechanical evaporator and a mechanical crystallizer. And that's really what we are uh, replacing. Uh, we do that with one step, with a lower operating cost, a lower capital cost, and with maximum water recovery. So uh, there's only a couple, actually, uh, lithium projects in South America right now uh, that are operational, only a handful of them. Uh, but with the expected demand facing us over the next decade or so, there will be dozens, if not more, uh, in South America alone, not to mention in the U.S., where there's opportunities for more uh, large-scale and smaller-scale decentralized uh, plants as well. So um, really what we're doing is we're introducing new technology that enhances uh, project developers' economic profiles and their sustainability profiles by maximizing water recovery. And um, the proliferation of this technology, in my mind, will play a big role in closing the supply-demand imbalance. Uh, that we're facing over the next several decades with lithium. And how about the scalability of the technology? I mean, you've got to remove the impurities. You've got different regions obviously have different types of minerals that are that are involved. For example, China has high magnesium content in the extraction process. So how can you scale it towards, you know, almost like a one size fits all based on the different chemicals that'll be associated in the various regions? So our technology, which is really step two, of that three-step part, uh, lithium, uh, bringing the lithium to, to the market process there. Our technology has been proven with previous generations and is uh, scalable due to its modular form. We really just add more uh, membranes for the most part, which is our core underlying technology. We have two small-scale uh, units, which could be a demonstration or, or, or they could actually be small commercial units uh, under the right circumstances. And, um, you know, so scaling up for us is really just a factor of um, uh, working with the project developer to meet whatever particulars they're looking for. And you have a background as an oil and gas analyst. How has that driven your strategy for KMX and what actually got you interested in this sector? Yeah, great question. Thanks so much. Yeah, I was an energy analyst my whole career and um, covered, covered a couple different aspects of the value chain upstream ENP, oil services, and I developed and led a water and energy initiative at Barclays, uh, which really led to my interest in getting into industry. For me, it was really all about going to where the ball is going. And um, the, the technology that um, had been developed by, by KMX really represented that to me in, in, in a number of different regards for water treatment and for its ability to concentrate uh, critical minerals. As it relates to the lithium landscape today, uh, yeah, I would say there's a lot of parallels 
with, uh, with oil and gas. We have a couple of different uh, important aspects of lithium development that are, that, are, that are very similar to oil and gas. The geology really matters, of course. Technology, extraordinarily important. But in-country, and even within-country, different regions, uh, understanding the different stakeholder issues, project economics can vary significantly, and um, the kind of play-by-play particulars that are prevalent in oil and gas are very similar to uh, this global lithium development upcycle that we're in the early innings of. Now, what I mean by that is we're looking at a number of different opportunities. The two I mentioned, one in Cornwall, one in Chile, but there's also several projects in the U.S. that we're very excited about. I think Canada represents a lot of opportunity for lithium development and elsewhere in Europe. All of these are, are, need to be approached on a on an individual basis with an understanding of those in-country particulars, the different technology um, opportunities, and the, uh, the varying economics uh, of those projects. And so that's very similar. There's a lot of uh, similarities between oil and gas, uh, traditional energy, and um, this emerging lithium landscape, in my mind. So it's a, it's, 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 it's a very exciting time, I think, to be in the lithium industry, obviously. And um, I think that uh, my experience in the traditional energy market really, really complements that. As I look at KMX, I mean, one of the things that I found very interesting was your ability to partner with traditional upstream companies on the water treatment side for lithium extraction. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you walk us through a little bit about that and how you go about it? Yeah, really right now, our, our, our bread and butter is a, um, our business model is more focused on making our technology available project developers, um, which, we, which we look to do through a long-term lease model. We will build a large-scale system, deliver that. You know, our base case is about, we, we, we look for called a 10-year uh, period where we will lease that to a customer, and um, that's, that's, that's really what we do. Uh, lithium is exciting for us because there's, it's not just a, in, in, in water treatment, you're managing a liability. So it's a really an operating expense for your counterparty, for the customer. Uh, but for lithium, this is a, a revenue item. Uh, so we have the opportunity to help the lithium project developer maximize their revenue uh, with production enhancement, with, with, with lowering their costs, improving their earnings. And, that's, that's a, 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 and also de-bottlenecking production. And with being a good water steward, ensuring that the project actually comes to fruition. Because a lot of these um, projects, depending on, on where they're operating, Water is really the most critical issue for local stakeholders and really represents a major uh, potential blocking point for the project. So we have the opportunity to add significant value, lithium and lithium project developers. And on the, the technology that you talk about, can you talk a little bit about how that technology works and how it's different from, from what we're seeing today? Yeah, great question. It's a really exciting technology. And we've got an extraordinary uh, team. Uh, our technical team is, is, is really just amazing. If you think about traditional water treatment, let's say reverse osmosis, you have a hydrophilic membrane. Uh, water can pass through it. And as water passes through it uh, over and over again, particles are captured. And that's the treatment process. Now, up to a certain point, that'll work. But at some point there, uh, the concentration levels become too high. The TDS becomes too high and only so much um, uh, the, uh, can be treated. We, we take the opposite approach. We use a hydrophobic 
membrane. Nothing can pass through it. Vapor is really um, what we're looking to uh, harness here. Uh, the hydrophobic membranes are, are put into straws, like a straw form. And there's lots of these straws within the, the membrane um, uh, bundle. Water is heated up to about 60, 70 degrees Celsius and runs up and down these hydrophobic straws. We apply a vacuum to the outside of the bundle of straws. And then as water is heated up, the water turns to vapor, and the vacuum pulls the vapor to the outside, letting the vapor pass through the hydrophobic membrane and leaving whatever particles are in there, whatever salts, lithium, critical minerals are in there on the other side. And then water returns to its, uh, uh, vapor returns to its water form, and you have pure separation. That's what we do. Very powerful technology, and it's um, fundamentally uh, very different than conventional treatment. Uh, we don't compete with reverse osmosis. Reverse osmosis and, and conventional treatments are, um, are, are, are a complementary technology to us. It's really a pretreatment for us. So it's, 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 uh, it opens up an exciting, a number of exciting markets for us to do very high-end water treatment or brine concentration, critical mineral concentration, lithium concentration, many other things as well. So a very, very powerful cross-cutting technology with uh, not a lot of competition. So tell me how that this process can accelerate the timeline to get to the refinery-grade lithium uh, to generate into batteries. Because I know with the evaporation pools, that process can take up to two years for that concentration process. So with the implementation of your technology, how much can you accelerate that overall process? The, right now, there's a couple different aspects of, of how utilizing next-generation technologies not only boosts project economics, but also um, allows project developers to move faster. Uh, with DLE, you are skipping the two-year period where, uh, where the evaporation ponds really need to go to work. For us, a lot of the what we're competing against is the evaporator crystallizers. More of a um, uh, it's more of a cost. Uh, capex, opex. As I mentioned, um, we operate under about 60, 70 degrees Celsius, while evaporator crystallizers have to bring the water to a boiling point. So a lot higher, a lot higher energy costs, energy usage, higher carbon, obviously. Currently, what they do in in, in many operations. Um, South America and elsewhere is uh, transport the um, lithium chloride in its natural state to uh, these evaporator crystallizer uh, large plants. Because remember, these are two different pieces of equipment here, industrial pieces of equipment. So it's a two-step process. So there's a transport aspect of it. What we will look to do is to build our small scale, smaller scale systems on location. So you're obviously cutting down on the transportation as well. Uh, there's a cost associated with that. A lot of project developers also care a lot about the um, the carbon intensity of the transport as well. Um, obviously, because a lot of the end users are looking at the carbon intensity of projects, um, not only the mining companies, the uh, the automotive offtakers, and of course, as as, as you know, increasingly the uh, fund managers as well. So, um, bringing the commodity to market sooner is um, uh, there, there. There's there's a number of different steps in what that entails from utilizing DLE upfront to uh, reducing transportation costs and um, harnessing a one-step process versus a two-step process. 
more importantly for us relative to evaporator crystallizers, though, is, is really the, the project economics and uh, maximum water recovery. And what's the quality of the water that comes out of this process? For us, you know, it's really whatever it is um, that the project developer uh, wants to bring it to. You know, we're able to bring uh, water to drinking quality water standards. And then even better than that would be distilled quality water. And in some circumstances, you know, we could take it all the way to, say, a pharmaceutical grade standard, which we would not want to do. But we have the ability to work with the project developer and the local stakeholders and the regulatory framework to bring that treated water to whatever standard uh, meets their interests. And that's a, very, that's a very powerful thing to be able to offer as well. With the growing use of renewables, such as solar, in our energy mix, the role of energy storage systems is more important than ever to ensure grid stability and reliability. Jinko Solar has you covered with battery storage solutions for grid edge to CNI and residential application. Jinko's new Eagle CS energy storage platform is a fully integrated turnkey AC coupled system featuring lithium iron phosphate for LFP batteries. It's scalable and fully configurable, making it ideal for any CNI or utility application. Eagle CS features both container level battery storage and modular solutions for maximum flexibility in system design. From microgrids to full-scale utility applications, Eagle CS has a solution and it's all backed by one of the most trusted brands in the renewable energy industry. Jinko's Eagle RS is a fully integrated DC coupled residential energy storage system that features best-in-class safety with LFP battery chemistry, an intelligent US-based monitoring app, and a single wrapped warranty. Jinko's high-capacity storage system is ideal for homes that need more than a few hours of backup. The use of just one single hybrid inverter for both the solar and the storage energy conversion provides the best value for solar plus storage installations. Visit www.jinkosolar.us interchange to learn more about Jinko Solar's Eagle Storage products. I mean, one of the things that really interests me is this ability to partner with existing oil and gas companies because, you know, we've seen a number of technologies in the energy transition space that have been able to utilize or partner with existing oil and gas energy companies, if you will. And I think it's really interesting KMX's ability to partner with the upstream companies right now on their water treatment, but then also utilize the process for potential lithium extraction from that just combining two industries together, uh, working towards an ultimate goal, I, I think it really helps with the overall energy transition story. So when you look at kind of the U.S. upstream space and being able to partner with some of these companies, what do you look for in terms of region play, like the Bakken versus the Permian? Where do you find opportunities most prevalent? I am extremely excited about the opportunity that the traditional energy and oil and gas industry, um, the opportunity that, that they are faced with right now to participate in the energy transition by capturing uh, valuable critical minerals uh, as a part of their uh, operations. Very exciting opportunity. Uh, as a couple of different plays uh, in, the, in the U.S. and the oil and gas landscape that we're focused on, the Permian Basin uh, particularly, just because of the sheer size of the resource and the higher uh, water cut as a byproduct of, of production makes for a very large lithium resource development opportunity. 
you have lithium in pretty low concentrations in the produced water, which is obviously a byproduct of oil and gas production, uh, say in the Permian. Uh, however, we bring the opportunity to concentrate that produced water and enhance the viability of bringing that, that lithium to the market. So we're very excited. We're having some very exciting conversations right now um, with some extremely thoughtful uh, oil and gas uh, companies, uh, whether they are uh, technology providers, uh, service companies, infrastructure owners. It's, it's, I think it's an extraordinary time right now. So the Permian is one place we're excited about. The Bakken has a little bit of higher concentration uh, of lithium in its produced water. Uh, however, your the scale of the Permian is really exciting for us. In Arkansas, there's a um, obviously where there's a number of high-profile lithium project developers focused. There's uh, very very attractive lithium resources there as well. So I think we're in the very early innings of the oil and gas industry, understanding the potential that um, uh, extracting lithium from produced water really presents. And we're very excited to be uh, what I believe to be very well positioned for this multi-year build out of this. And I think it's interesting because you've, you're turning a liability or a cost side of the equation into a revenue opportunity with treating the water with these companies. Absolutely. You know, right now, um, there's a number of different aspects of uh, treating produced water right now. Right now, really, and I don't, uh, you probably you know this well, David, but um, what produced water, uh, what happens with it today is it goes into old exhausted oil wells, which are converted into saltwater disposal wells. And um, uh, these, the, the, the owners of saltwater disposal wells charge a per barrel fee to take the uh, produced water from the oil and gas companies and dispose of it in these wells. Now, that water is very mineral rich. Uh, one, it represents a, 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 an operating cost to the oil and gas company. And two, there's a lost potential revenue stream because they're putting these critical minerals uh, down hole to be basically lost uh, forever. Um, uh, also, there's another unfolding aspect of this that, that, that makes doing something else with that produced water even more attractive. And that's the increased seismicity that we're seeing in some of these regions. Uh, we saw seismicity concerns, uh, say, in Oklahoma. Uh, several years ago, very um, uh, ramp up very significantly. And now you're seeing this unfold in the Permian Basin. And regulators on the Texas side and the New Mexico side are taking this very seriously. And I personally believe that that will do a lot to uh, accelerate the move to treating this water to the highest standards such that, such that uh, something else can be done with it. Uh, including put it on, putting, it, putting that treated water on, uh, on crops, maybe non-edible crops at first, putting it, you know, going to grow. Um, there's a lot of tests being done about growing with growing alfalfa right now in that region. This is also a very arid region, which would just benefit from the additional water resources. So I, I, I think it's very exciting as a way to get away from the concerns with seismicity, to capture critical minerals, including lithium in the process, but also unleash that water for a beneficial purpose. Three very important things, not to mention um, it lowers the operating expense from the oil and gas company because now they're not paying uh, to put it down hole. So this is something that um, the large oil and gas companies that are looking to go into manufacturing mode 
for all their oil and gas well, uh, all, all their inventory over the next several years should really be thinking about. What are we going to do? What's our five, 10-year plan to produce all the oil and gas from these wells, but at the same time, not be bottlenecked because we don't have a plan uh, with our produced water? How do we turn this produced water into a resource and ensure that we're able to uh, efficiently bring the other commodities to the market as well? It's very exciting. It's an extraordinary time, I think. Yeah, I mean, the water process, in the Permian in particular, has, has been a topic of interest for the oil and gas companies for, for many years now. And it's like I said, I think it's just very interesting to be able to take that aspect of it and turn it into an opportunity, as you said, for, for reuse appropriately of the water, but then also extracting some minerals uh, for use on the, uh, on the other side. And when you look at these regions, what do you need to make it commercially viable? But you know, what, what concentration levels in that water uh, on the lithium side do you look for uh, to move forward? Yeah, great question. And, 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 and absolutely, on all fronts, to your points there. One, we look for scale. We want, we want, we want to understand that um, uh, if we're going to move forward with a partner or potentially be involved in project development uh, ourselves, that the scale is there to make it economically attractive on a commercial level. Uh, the concentrations is very important. Right now, the, the DLE companies really have a lot of concern with anything below 50 parts per million uh, lithium content. But many of them below 100 uh, would be challenging. So um, that doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room for the concentrations, particularly in the Permian Basin. Depending on where you are, you could be somewhere in that range. My belief is that, as we saw with the um, uh, shale revolution, that technology will only get better as development persists and as the cycle uh, unfolds here. And to use the oil and gas analogy, break-evens for wells and for projects continually were pushed down as new technology improvements were brought to the market and as resource developers understood how to go about uh, efficiently uh, developing their assets. And I think that we're going to see a similar trend in, uh, in lithium. And as a result of that, I think that the U.S. lithium landscape is extremely underappreciated. And these lower concentration lithium resources will play a big role in closing the supply-demand imbalance that we're facing. Now, we might be looking at a smaller, more decentralized uh, lithium landscape in the U.S., uh, but I believe that the technology improvements that are unfolding right now will be applied to some of these lower concentration uh, lithium resources. We will not be where we are today in five years. And the economic viability of the projects uh, will only improve. But today, what we look for, to answer your question, uh, we look for a sizable resource, uh, a partner that we believe in. Uh, and we look for, we would like to see lithium concentration levels at a relatively viable level, even if it is for a, um, a pilot or to characterize a resource. It's a good point about the decentralized nature of, of what you would see in the U.S. side versus kind of concentrated in, say, South America. As you look at the energy use, you know, I know that you said that your process is more energy efficient than the current evaporation crystallizers that are being used. But when you take the U.S., for example, kind of spreading this out across and, and treating the water and being able to extract the minerals... How do you see that being 
from a green side standpoint and efficient. So, I mean, are you looking at procuring energy to, to run that process from renewable sources or what do you see as the environmental impact to that? Look, I think um, it's, 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 it's project specific. It's, it's regionally specific. You know, in South America, you obviously have um, ample uh, solar energy. In the U.S., in some places, you have uh, geothermal uh, energy. You have, in the oil-producing landscape, you have a lot of um, uh, natural gas that maybe isn't being put to use efficiently, which is a byproduct of oil production. So um, it depends. It depends. We take a very hard look at all of these different considerations um, when deciding which projects we want to work on. The energy costs are very important. We're speaking with more and more producers that want to understand the ancillary carbon costs as well. So that's, that's very important. To the U.S.'s um, uh, strategic competitiveness, we have the opportunity to harness a number of different uh, energy resources collectively to maximize um, efficiency. So it, it truly is kind of an all-of-the-above uh, resource development approach. Yeah, your point is spot on about being asked about the emissions uh, across the value chain. I mean, people are not just focused on scope one emissions. You hear more and more about scope two and scope three as being a focus as well. But the whole the whole chain is being considered as people evaluate opportunities. Absolutely. So from a policy standpoint, I mean, what, what do you think the government can be doing, particularly in light of the current inflationary situation that we have here right now? I mean, we actually talked about on our on our podcast last time was getting people behind the energy transition when, you know, uh, maybe a piece of it, uh, it it's obviously arguable, is um, is the energy transition uh, is is being a cause of it. I, I think that everybody can point fingers in a number of different directions, but how do you get that support, and what can be done from the government policy side to be able to further this initiative. Because like I said, I really like what, what this technology brings because it's, it's partnering with existing industries. It's utilizing resources that right now are being discarded, as you said, in, into the saltwater disposal wells and, and being able to, to recycle some of that for, for use that furthers the energy transition story because we know that the batteries and lithium side are going to continue to grow and forecasted to grow throughout the years. What can be done by the government in your eyes to help further this initiative? And it may be you know, focused on being able to more efficiently extract the lithium out of the, the water treatment in the, in the U.S. That is a great question. Personally, I think that, uh, that a barbell approach is needed at the national level and at the state level. And what I mean by that is uh, supporting emerging technologies and um, um, making funds available to continue to progress the technology development for smaller companies, for new technologies, and really um, maximizing their ability to punch above their weight. And that the other side of, of, of the barbell is encouraging traditional energy users that have a totally different fiduciary responsibility and stated risk return profile to get them to participate in the energy transition and start to harness these resources, which they have, to play a role in the energy transition. And I can tell you that a lot of these companies are very excited to do this. And uh, we're speaking with a number of very large oil and gas companies that are excited about the opportunity to maximize 
shareholder value by uh, monetizing critical minerals and participating in the energy transition uh, in the process. So I think the government can do a lot to um, support new companies, but also to encourage the incumbent companies that are focused um, uh, on, their, on their current and old uh, business models to uh, participate in this new industry. How are you finding, just let's pick Texas, for example, in regards to the permitting and piloting process? Are you seeing any kind of easing of that or, or not? Texas is very interested in moving forward with this. There's a, um, uh, there's a number of uh, working groups, which are uh, a combination of industry, academia, that are promoting best practices uh, in water treatment, critical mineral uh, recovery, you know, and, and, and the Texas uh, regulators, from what I can see, are moving in the right direction. Some of the groups we are speaking with are eyeing exactly projects like this uh, in Texas, where critical minerals can be recovered, uh, water can be treated to the highest standards, and something can be done without water. So uh, it feels like we're moving in the right direction in turning this from an idea to a pilot project to a commercial build-out. And it feels to me that Texas is very understanding of the opportunity here and is um, excited to make this happen as well. That's obviously a very important state to be driving this path forward here. And you're right. There's different things that can be done at the state level uh, versus the federal level. I know one of the things at the federal level, loan guarantees uh, to help with the financing aspect of things. How are you seeing the financing market for energy transition companies and technologies like yourselves. And how's KMX financed and what do you see going forward? Yeah, it's no, it's a very exciting time from the financing market. There's where we we look at two paths forward for us. We're obviously excited to continue to scale our company at the corporate level with um, whether it be venture capital, um, strategic investor capital, family office, a number of uh, avenues where investors are excited about growth equity for a company like ours. So that's, that's a, we're in a, it's a very exciting time for our technology and company. For the projects, we're talking about large-scale industrial infrastructure projects that are contract-backed by um, large creditworthy counterparties. And that, that creates a very powerful and attractive project finance opportunity for us. So for the current projects that we're looking at, it's a mix, and it depends on where the project is. For our project in Chile, it opens up a number of interesting uh, project finance opportunities uh, as we work with Clean Tech Lithium to build out this large-scale infrastructure. And that would be very different as a U.S. company exporting our technology to a country which has good relations with the U.S., uh, is building out a strategic resource a sector, and, um, and a good credit worker counterparty as a company. That's very different and needs to be taken uh, independently versus, say, working directly with a um, large oil and gas company here in the U.S. So I think that the, the risk-return particulars matter a lot as we look to build out on a project-by-project basis. But, you know, it's, it's, there, there's a lot of different options and opportunities. But it's, 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 it's a very exciting kind of dual path for us as we think about scaling this technology in terms of financing. On that project financing, What's being required right now? Are you, are you pretty much having to have contracts signed uh, in order to get the project financing, or are you truly getting development financing with that on the, 
on the cusp. Obviously, you know, debt project finance from a credit lender, they would like the project to be uh, mature, ready to go, contract backed, and 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 whatnot. So um, that's very different than progressing the project path and moving forward towards that level with a, say, like an equity growth investor. So there's a couple different aspects. We're working with a number of different groups right now that are excited about the opportunity to uh, proliferate this technology and to be in the position to help us build out a fleet of these systems, which would be contract-backed with uh, attractive counterparties. It varies, but it's exciting time. So looking forward, and, and based on your background as an equity analyst, what's your thoughts on the public market's receptivity in the future for companies such as KMX and the energy transition technology-related companies and the receptivity of those investors in the public markets? I think it's an extraordinarily exciting time for the energy transition as it relates to the public markets. Obviously, there's been a lot of excitement uh, initially with the um, the end, the ultimate end user of lithium, which is the automobile uh, companies that are that are that. Then and there's an there's there's basically a race to electrify because of how the market has treated Tesla in many ways, of course. And uh, that's not the the only factor, but um, uh, it seems to be a driving factor based on the um, uh, the market reaction. I believe that there will be a trickle down kind of effect for this. And you're seeing it already with the valuations that are applied to the um, lithium project developers relative to other, other commodity producers. Uh, this is really seen as, as a strategic commodity. We're in the early innings of a multi-decade upcycle of lithium uh, production and demand growth. So it feels like the market um, uh, is really reflecting that. A lot of the, the, the battery makers and um, ancillary technology companies uh, around EVs and batteries are also being uh, acknowledged by the market as well. And I expect that there will be a continued read-through in valuations and, and market attention. However, at some point here, as happens with every single uh, um, thematic um, upcycle and sector and subsector, there will be winners and losers. I think we're in the early to middle kind of uh, stage of understanding who that will be in, say, the direct lithium extraction, the DLE companies. Which ones of these companies are actually able to scale? It won't be, it, it doesn't seem it will be all of them. So uh, right now, uh, you have market excitement about the theme. And then as that um, uh, matures, the market will start to look for who will be the winners and losers of this and start to take uh, a view on which is the best viable technology. And then after that, it'll really come down to who is building backlog. How is that backlog converting from uh, backlog to revenue and ultimately to earnings? And then at that point, what is the, um, uh, the appropriate valuation for these companies and not just hype? The energy transition represents potentially one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, investment opportunities of this generation, it feels like. There's obviously other exciting themes as well, but the energy transition is uh, uh, very real, it feels. I don't think there's any going back. It will be interesting to see. I mean, uh, like you said, there's probably very healthy multiples 
uh, on valuations for some of these companies as they're developing their concepts. But as that transitions into revenue and an ongoing business, those multiples will be right-sized, right? But then at what point do you still see healthy multiples on some of these higher growth, higher opportunity companies that, like you said, are, are the winners in, in the energy transition? Well, this has been a great conversation. I, let me ask you, if you were to see one hurdle uh, that KMX faces over the next 10 years, what would you say that is and what should be done to help overcome it? It's, it's really bandwidth and people. This company is a product of its people. We have extraordinary technology, intellectual capacity. We're on our third generation of uh, product right now, which, as I mentioned, um, we don't think has much competition. Our fourth generation will, we believe, put our third generation out of business. So continually improving the technology, uh, that starts with the people. So getting enough good people to um, uh, continually scale this company, to meet the needs of the energy transition, to meet the needs of our customer base, I believe that will be the, the biggest challenge for our company. Zach, again, this has been really interesting, and I'm very excited to see what KMX continues to do, especially partnering with oil and gas companies, because I think it's just a nice fit with really what is the energy transition and, and utilizing existing resources and technologies and getting rid of waste and turning those into revenue opportunities. Uh, so I'm, like I said, I'm very excited to see what, what is forward for you guys. Thanks so much, David. I really appreciate it. With the harnessing of energy from the Earth's natural resources comes a seasonality problem of influxes of energy. As we explored on the last episode, there are ways we can ensure we are storing energy for when the sun isn't bright enough or the winds die down. That's where batteries, big and small, come into play. <laughs>